everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the StatCast. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Sam Greenman. I am a junior at Boston University, rising class, or class of 2021, and I am joined by Harrison Friedman. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Harrison. I am also a junior at Boston University, and I am also studying statistics. And what you have to know about us for this podcast is that we are absolute baseball junkies. But also, at the same time, we're absolute stats junkies. So this is going to be a combination of the two of those. That's absolutely right. Let's let's start with the first segment um, that we're going to do today. It's going to be award races. All so right. I published an article today about why I think Christian Yelich should still win the MVP, even though he's lost every year. And my main my main argument is that... Think back to 2010 in the AL. In the AL, the MVP went to Hamilton, and he only played 130 games. And it's it's you can compare the two races very well because Hamilton's counting stats weren't as high, but the rate, but Hamilton's rate stats were better to the point where it just made Hamilton's stats look like he was probably better than Cabrera, even though Cabrera had a great season. But the, the fact is Yelich is having like the be- so much better rate stats, and he's keeping relative pace with um, with Bellinger. So I feel like the whole notion of having Bellinger win the MVP because Yelich is going to miss the last month of the season isn't fair. Okay. I honestly agree with that, and... Although it's true that Cody Bellinger is playing on a team that's the best in the NL, hands down, and I would say he's a better defender than Yelich. And also, we don't have MVP fatigue of, you know, Yelich won it last year, so someone new should win it. I think that the reason that Yelich should win the MVP is because he has seven, uh, he's got a seven in his win probability added stat. And that's something which he led the league in last year when he won MVP with six. Bellinger has five right now, is he not? Bellinger is somewhere between five and six right now, but Yelich has an incredible seven in only 130 games because what Yelich has done basically is sort of what people always hope Mike Trout will do, which is just be an absolutely phenomenal player on a relatively average team. I know, maybe the Brewers are better than the Angels, which the Angels are just kind of terrible, so I understand that. But Yelich is leading a team or has led a team until as of about a week ago that has been in playoff contention all year, even as its rotation falls apart, as Josh Hader completely underperforms, and as has several people with breakout seasons last year are also just not doing so hot. So because of that, I agree, Christian Yelich should be the National League MVP. Or at the very least, should be in strong consideration with Cody Bellinger. See, it's, it's very weird because... If you take away Yelich from the Brewers, they probably I said they I said they probably won't finish above 500. If you take Bellinger away from the Dodgers, he's he'll probably Dodgers will probably win the NL West regardless because their team is just that stacked with talent. And it's very weird to see Yelich being gone and the Brewers making a late push in his absence for this last NL wild card. Because right now, I think they're tied with the Cubs for the second wild card spot in the NL. 
something like that. Yeah, the Cubs played today. I don't remember what the. I don't know if I checked the score, but they're neck and neck right now. And the Cubs are going to play the Cardinals in seven of their last ten games. Yeah, and Cardinals are playing the Nationals, I think, in the other three, are they not? Yeah, yeah. So the Brewers, I don't think they have a chance to win the division. I think that might be just beyond their grasp, especially since the Cubs and the Cardinals are playing each other. So it's sort of either one team breaks away or or they all basically stay the same. But the Brewers have a definite shot at getting the second wild card. If the Nationals falter, and if the or and or if the Cubs just absolutely suck when they play St. Louis, then the Brewers can sneak into that second spot. And you know that they're a team with experience. Not a lot of other teams have, besides the Dodgers, obviously have the experience that the Brewers do. So they could make some noise in the playoffs. But it remains to be seen if they will make it in the first place. Do you? think that team success should factor into the MVP discussion? Um, In baseball, more than any other sport, I would say it's the least important. But then the question is of, well, what kind of team success? Because you have someone like Christian Yelich, who is prob- who's clearly the best player on his team and it's not that close, versus someone like Cody Bellinger, who is on one of the best teams in baseball, that probably wouldn't blink twice if he had been out for the year in June. So team success is, I guess it's important because people have always said, oh, well, the Angels are terrible, even though they have Mike Trout. So Mike Trout can't help them win games, which, yes, that's true. And so I I don't know. I I understand why people might say that Yelich, though, as opposed to other players, deserves to win the MVP. And it's sort of like the same argument that people make for manager of the year. Who usually wins manager of the year? That's an interesting question because it's usually the guy that has the most wins, but I feel like it's mm-hmm. it's gone back and forth between it's the, it's either the guy who has had the most wins and the guy that has had the most wins more than we thought he would. Exactly, I think it's more it's the more than we thought he would. It's like the guy who took a team who which totally underperformed the year before. Like I think Bannister won it in 2015. Alex Cora won in 2018. When I don't think he did. Cora, I'm pretty sure Cora won. I'm relatively sure Cora won. He might not have. We'll look that up. I thought I I thought Bob Melvin won. That could be possible. I don't really know. Because, you know, it's the athletics. Yeah, the A's were supposed to be absolutely terrible. The Red Sox were just supposed to be pretty good. Probably a playoff team. But that's what I think. That's the only... Yeah, it, was, it was Bob Melvin. Okay, okay. And yeah, so but I was actually going to say... That I lines up with the... Cora should have won. Oh, well... Because he's still made great decisions... Especially in the playoffs, like he, I think the people vote who vote for the manager of the year really don't watch the games. They just see, oh wow, this guy, this team wasn't supposed to be good, and they're incredible. And yeah, they vote for him. I understand that, and that's also why I kind of think manager of the year is a dumb kind of thing that people vote for. Like this is the NFL, but I don't know if Bill Belichick has won more than like one or two coach of the years, and because it's usually the manager of the year, usually is the NFL's coach of the year even a thing. Yeah, it is. Do people care about it? No. But, I don't know. But whatever. This is baseball talk. But anyway, so I think that team success should uh, factor in a little bit when it's clear that a team would not have made the playoffs without them. If it's like, oh, well, this team would have made the playoffs anyway, or this team wouldn't have made the playoffs anyway, then just look at the value. But Yelich has that sort of boost, especially when you look at that seven wins 
that he's added in win probability. So that Yelich is the kind of guy who I'd be like, okay, this guy deserves it because he's neck and neck with Bellinger in rate stats. He's neck and neck in Bellinger in with Bellinger in counting stats. He's neck and neck with Bellinger in war and et cetera, et cetera. But also, look what he's done with the team that was doing its best to implode after a great season last year. Well, here's the thing. The rate stats are not close. Yelich is going to finish with an OPS 70 points higher. Oh, really? Yeah, he's going to lead the, lead the majors in OPS because he qualified. He'll lead the majors for slugging. He'll lead at least the NL in on-base percentage, and he has a chance to lead an average if Rendon doesn't, if he, if Rendon stays under 329. So, yeah, Yelich is, Yelich, I would say probably, well, maybe not a lock for the MVP, but people had pretty much come around to the idea that he was the assumed MVP until he fouled a ball off of his knee. So when you're doing that well, and um, I don't know, unless Cody Bellinger really gets hot and maybe the Dodgers uh, win, like, steal home field advantage on the last day of the season, thinks of some Bellinger heroics. If there's, no, if there's not enough narrative for Bellinger, and if he doesn't, I don't know, tear the cover off the ball in the next 10 days, then it's still Yelich's to lose. It's going to be close, but it's still Yelich's to lose. Let's move on to the Cy Young candidates because it's very close in the NL. I think it's getting to be less close in the AL. Two candidates in the AL are Verlander and Cole. I think Verlander is going to win it hands down. He leads the majors with a 183 uh, ERA plus right now to Cole's, I think, 170-something. It's very close. It's, it's it's very close, but I think Verlander has been a tick above him the entire year. That's a fair take. Verlander also has pitched uh, in one more start, and he's also gone a little further in his starts because Verlander has a tendency to just throw as few pitches as possible and just mow down a lineup and keep throwing 98 in the seventh inning. So that's why Verlander is the presumptive guy. It's a sort of deal where there are two people who are neck and neck but everyone prefers one candidate, so they're going to win in a vote that won't be as close as it really looks in real life. I think that Cole, I don't know if he's broken 300 strikeouts or he's going to break it tonight because he's pitching tonight. But by the time you hear this, they Garrett Cole... Two, they both have two more starts left. Yeah. By the time you hear this, Garrett Cole will have 300 strikeouts. Verlander is 11 away, I believe. But anyway... It's Verlander's race to lose because he not only has he been great all season, he's really turned it on in the second half. He just I think he's got an XFIP below two. He's just pitching he's pitching out of his mind. He threw a no hitter that's one of the best games that any of us have seen in a long time. He allowed one hit in the second inning, I believe it was, and yeah, Garrett Cole has also had a great season. One of the maybe top five seasons in the AL in the last five years or so. But Verlander has been even better. I mean, I, I can't commit to that. that's conjecture, but it seems like, I don't know, it seems like this this year's Cy Young race has had some really historic uh, finishers. I don't know. In an, especially in a league such as this, when no one is finishing games, basically, when they're on MLB.com, they're not even showing how many like the shutout leaders because it's like one or two or maybe three that's the kind of thing where when pe- people are pitching like Garrett Kolar and 
Justin Verlander, that's when you really have to give, give credit to them. John Heyman just tweeted, Miguel Rojas and the Marlins are in agreement on a two-year deal plus a team option. Interesting. But which buys out one arbitration year and one free agent year. The Marlins are yeah. not very exciting, no. Hashtag. Uh, let's move NL Cy Young because that's – you honestly could probably come up with four names and there's an argument to be made for all four. I can understand that. So it's very – it's tight in the sense that Soroka actually has the highest ERA plus of any of them. Yeah. And DeGrom has the worst of all of them. And then the, then Scherzer and um, Ryu are sandwiched in the middle. But it's it's close. There's a different case for each of them. I say it's got to be Degrom because he's got. I think he's got three more starts than everybody else. He's. I think his fifth is. Let me check. Grom's fifth is. Grom's fifth's two seven nine. Yeah, Grom's doing phenomenally this year, and as far as ex fifth goes, in first place, we have Garrett Cole, but then Max Scherzer, and Max Scherzer is ahead of Degrom by twenty points in, in ex fifth, which you know is the, sort of the measure of what a it's a better measure of fifth. That's what their expected fifth is. It's how well they've been pitching. So I agree with you. That Degrom deserves a Cy Young, but it's because he's pitched thirty more innings. Scherzer has pitched better in the thirty fewer innings that he's pitched. I it would ha- be hard for me to say that Degrom has been the best pitcher in the league, but at the same time he's been the most consistent, and he has made every single start I believe. So when you're pitching like that again in 2019, where so many teams are turning to the bullpen, so many teams are making their starters go maybe four or five, maybe six innings, when pe- when teams have openers, bullpen games, just all over, then I think that's, that kind of thing is going to be more and more impressive, especially during through the next decade, where teams are going to try even harder to get that those one or two pitchers who they can just turn to for seven or eight innings every single time. Obviously, that's something teams have been chasing forever, but usually they would just throw every guy in for those seven or eight innings. So now, as those players become fewer and far further between, those kinds of guys, I think you're going to see win a lot of awards. Yeah, it's... To be honest, this is one of the only races that's close, aside from the MVP and the NL. Mm-hmm. Rookie, both of the Rookie of the Years are decided. It's, you know, it's Alonzo and uh, Alvarez, but... It's weird talking about Soroka as a Cy Young candidate, and we're kind of ruling him out of the Rookie of the Year voting. Yeah, it's an interesting year. It's it's weird because you, if things fall right, you could have Soroka win the Cy Young Award, but not for Rookie of the Year. That's a fair point. Let's say Soroka has a couple of great games to finish off the year. It really won't matter for him because Pete Alonso has 47 home runs and is probably going to get 50. And you don't see rookies do that very often. So. Yeah, you've only ever. In fact, it's only ever happened one time. Who did it? Judge. Oh, Aaron Judge. That makes a lot of sense. And Aaron Judge won the Rookie of the Year. So, 
And then in the AL, you also have a slugger, except this slugger has been playing for less of the season because he only got called up on June 8th because of Super 2. That would be Jordan Alvarez, who he's playing DH. Every game that he's played in left field, which is, I don't know, maybe something like 10 games, he's had a pretty terrible uh, defensive rating. And, but at the same time, he's hitting so well. He's been hitting so well in the second half, which is basically all he's been playing, that he has so, uh, somewhere in the range of a 175 WRC+, plus, which only Mike Trout has equal to this season. And so if you prorate Alvarez this season, because he's played around 80 games right now, he's got a war of around 3.5, that's a 7-war season, which would put him right around Bregman in the second place uh, in AL MVP voting. And that's from a DH, which shows you just how well he's been hitting. He'd probably finish with all, all of things being equal, and if he continues the outstanding pace that he's on, he'll fin- he, would, he would probably finish with 50 homers and 150 RBIs. Which is absolutely nuts. Under- it's understandable that he finished with around 150 I- RBIs, seeing as how he's hitting fifth in a stacked Astros lineup. Bro, yeah, so let's talk about that. The Astros lineup yesterday consisted of just like nine guys who just absolutely hit just nukes. Yeah. So, and when your worst hitter is either, I think Trinos was in the lineup. Trinos was hitting number eight. Reddick was hitting Reddick number was nine. nine. And Carlos Correa was coming back. He came back yesterday, yeah, uh, Tuesday, and he hit seventh. Carlos Correa hit seventh. He struck out three times on 0 for 4, but it was his first game back, so it's understandable. But when Josh Reddick, who went 5 for 5 on Sunday, is hitting ninth in your lineup, and and Robinson Chirinos, who's a catcher specifically known for his hitting ability, not really for his defensive prowess, is hitting eighth, then that's a real stack team. If so... We could talk. We could be talking about three Ashes as MVP candidates if they'd played the whole season because George Springer was on an MVP phase before he got injured and Alvarez obviously got called up too late. But if you ignore let's pretend Mike Trout doesn't exist. We can't forget, forget about Brantley. He of was, course. He was like oh, yeah. tops in the AL and batting average for a while. Michael Brantley is also just near the tops in WRC+, and so is Yuli Gurriel. The Ashes lineup is absolutely stacked, but ignoring Trout, if Springer and Alvarez had played the whole year, you could have the Astros finish 1-2-3 in MVP voting and 1-2 and two in Cy Young voting, which just shows you how phenomenal a team that they've been. Let's move to... Power rankings? Power rankings, yeah. We'll, yeah. Let's, let's, rank some, let's rank some teams. Okay, so right now tie, they're both tied with 99 wins, the Astros and the Yankees, and the Dodgers are just one game behind them with 98. But here's something which people should always be looking at, it, and that is run differential. Run differential shows you not just how many games a team has won, but how dominant they've been in the games that they've won. So the Astros are in first place in run differential and in my power rankings, and they have 258 run differential. And the Dodgers in second are plus 242. And so that just shows you how crazy they've been because the Yankees are plus 196 in run differential, and they're 60 points behind the first-place Astros, which is just insane to see. So my power rankings go Astros at 1, Dodgers at 2, Yankees at 3, which is a very, very close tier. All those teams have basically been in the top tier all season and have just been switching around with each other based on hot streaks, based basically on how well each team has been doing, which has been well the whole season. And then in fourth, I have the Twins, who... 
our fourth in run differential with a plus 170. And then fifth place, a lot of people would say the Braves. Some people would say the Rays. But I say the A's are in fifth place. They're also in fifth place in run differential with 152. And no one else has over 120. And they took three out of four from the Astros last week. The Astros had just won 21-1 to against the Mariners and then won 21-7 to against the A's. So you think the A's are kind of like, okay, we won't, we won't try it in our next few games. The Astros are just the best team in baseball. No, the A's come right back and drop 20 on them. And then they win the next two games, including a nail-biter against Justin Verlander. The A's are serious, and somehow they're going to have to play one game to decide their season. But I think they have a great shot at it, and I think... That even if they play the whether they they play the Astros or the Yankees or whoever they might play in the ALCS, I think the A's are someone who you can definitely look at as a possible World Series contender. Hot take, no. Oh, the way the way the, way the Athletics are going right now, they're stumbling into this cycle of winning ninety games, getting the wild card, either winning it and getting swept the first round, or losing it and not playing any more games altogether, or they're just finishing at five hundred. They, they need to—I don't really know the logistics of it, but the way their teams have been set up in this year and in the past are not postseason-dominating teams. They don't have the, pe- the capability to dominate postseason just because they—I feel like he, he, you put a bunch of above-average players on a roster, they'll get you 93 wins— but when it comes to the real classes of the league, I think it's very hard to have 25 above-average guys against 10 stars and 10 slightly below-average guys that altogether would win the same amount of games. I think the Athletics just aren't a good team. That's a real hot take. Matt Matt Chapman could finish in the could finish third in MVP voting this year. Sean Manea is back and seems dominant, but at the same time, I do understand because Mike Fires has been their most consistent starter all year, and Mike Fires was the guy who got tagged for uh, most of those runs in the Astros A's blowout. He's also threw a no hitter this season. He did throw a no hitter in 140 pitches. Yeah, it. Fires. Oh, Fires is. I love to talk about Mike Fiers. He led the World Series winning 2017 Astros in innings pitched and then did not make the postseason roster, which is kind of ignominious. But I don't know, Mike Fiers is the kind of guy who is pretty decent, but isn't a lot better than pretty decent. And so when it comes to the lineups that are basically already clinched a playoff spot, which is the Astros lineup, the Yankees lineup, and the Twins lineup, those are three historically good teams, especially the Astros and the Twins. And the Yankees obviously are no joke. So, unfortunately for the A's, they're fifth in the power rankings with three AL teams ahead of them. So, and a game probably against the Rays, or if not the Rays, and the Indians awaiting them. But they are 8-2 and two in their last 10, and they seem hotter than... They're two games ahead of the Rays right now, and they seem hotter than all the rest of the teams right now. That are uh, than the Indians, than the Astros, and the Yankees, and the Twins. So, if the A's can ride that hot streak and win a one and win one game that decides their entire season, then they could make some serious noise. And they're my sleeper team to watch this October. What's your bottom five? My bottom five. 
the tank for the Torque, Spencer Torque Torkelson, who is just an absolute slugger in college baseball right now. And so, team that I've got at fifth is the Mariners. And you'd expect the Blue Jays to be in that five spot because by record they are. So by fifth, do you mean like 26th? Fifth, I mean 26th. Right. Fifth worst team, the Mariners. Because the Mariners started off this season 13-2 and with baseball's best record over the first 15 games. And they have just been in an absolute tailspin since. They have a run differential of negative 131, which is the fifth worst in baseball. The Blue Jays, on the other hand, are trending up. The Blue Jays just took two out of three from the Yankees. Also, the Blue Jays didn't have to use a major league record 67 players this season. That's true. The Mariners are just sort of falling to the finish line. It's almost a free fall at this point. But the Blue Jays, their youth has been showing up. They finally called up Vlad Guerrero Jr. Bo Bichette has basically been the second best rookie in the AL for the time that he's played. And Kevon Biggio just hit for the cycle. It was against the Orioles. I don't know if it counts. I mean, nothing really counts against the Orioles, but he still did it, which is impressive in its own. The Yankees have lost two games against the O's this year, as crazy as that sounds. The, the Yankees always have problems with the Orioles. They were not. <laughs> I think they went like 9-10 and 10 against them last year. That's surprising. But anyway, so the Orioles we're going to talk about in a second. But right now, um, and notice, like just like we had four AL teams in the top five, we also have four AL teams in the bottom five. Which, you know, it, it balances out. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. We're going to talk about that in a second. But right now, so the Royals are in fourth. Royals, they, they've they made some attempts against the Astros in their series against them this weekend, but they're just not very good. You know, Whit, they, they, they tried. They really, they really tried, guys. Whit Merrifield had some nice hits, but that's basically their entire team at this point. Jorge Solares might hit like 47, 48 home runs. Yeah, he's hit 22 home runs since the All-Star break, which is second only Eugenio Suarez. But at the same time... Part of your bright future reds. At the same time, the Royals are just not that good this year. Then the Marlins, like we mentioned earlier, are just terrible. They got a negative 178 run differential, which, again, in any season would be terrible. But let's hear the O's and the Tigers' run differential. The O's have a negative 261 run differential. They've been worse than the Astros are good, which somehow doesn't even put them as the worst team in the league because the Tigers are three and a half games worse and have a negative 298 run differential. I don't know how many teams in baseball history have had a negative 300 run differential, but the Tigers have already lost 105 games and, well, there does not seem to be much of a bright future there. It's They traded Justin Verlander a couple years ago. They have had. They lost J.D. Martinez. Who's good on the Tigers these days? Uh, well, they just traded. They traded Castellanos at the deadline, so he's he's gone. They yeah, have, they have Matthew Boyd. You know, Matt Boyd. That's, he's something. Yeah, Matt Boyd, the guy who they wouldn't trade the deadline because they decided that he was worth Forrest Whitley. They have a fossilized Miguel Cabrera. Yeah. So the Tigers are in terrible shape, and they don't have an ex-Astros acolyte as their GM. So I think. We're going to see them in this spot for a couple year, a couple more years. Anyway, let's talk about, um, what was it going to be? Why don't we talk about the fact that oh, there that. is no parity in the league right now. Yeah. So, right now, in terms of Pythagorean and win-loss and base runs um, via fan graphs, in the American League... They're they're the closest 
to 500 that a team is going to get this year is around 75 wins. Yeah. Right now, the Rangers are 71 and 80 in Pythagorean, which, you know, seems relatively normal for a team that's a little below 500. So they're nine games below 500 in Pythagorean right now. There's no other team within 10 of 500 in the American League. The Angels are 12, are 12 below 500. The Red Sox are 15 above 500. And basically, if you're in the AL, you are either a have or have not, and there's no have a little. Yeah, there's a there's. It's it, it is very weird to see, you're it's either. Deep tanking or gunning for a postseason spot with only two teams in between that. Yeah, and I really I really think the Rangers tried to tank the season. Yeah, the Rangers tried to tank the season, but unfortunately, Lance Lynn and Mike Miner have been two of the best pitchers in the AL. Which th- doesn't really seem to make sense, but no, know, that's that's a that's a conversation for another time. Why don't we talk about the wild card race in the AL and just how crazy it is? So, yeah, here's the one interesting fact about this is that all three teams are gonna finish. How many wins are they gonna get? Uh, all three wild card teams should finish in the range of like ninety four to ninety nine wins, which is a lot. And there's gonna be a team at the end of this that's going to not make the playoffs even when there are two wild cards even and, and they're going to win 95 games. Yeah. That's almost unprecedented. The only real c- comparison that we could find was with the Reds in 1999. They won 96 games and so did the Mets and then the Mets beat them in a one-game playoff. For yeah. The last wild card. And that was back when there was only one wild card. But in the entire wild card era with three divisions, one wild card, or two wild cards. That's the only time that has ever happened. And that was 20 years ago. And so this year, the fact that there are three teams who are going to win that many games, and none of them are going to win their divisions, and one of them won't even make the wild card, that's just absolutely insane to me. Yeah, there's the American League and the National League are just so different in terms of parity. Yeah. The National League Central is about is five teams within ten games of five hundred, basically. Yeah. And the AL Central, well, I guess that's not that great of an example, but I guess I guess the AL Central is where two of those teams in the bottom five, another team that's probably the seventh worst team, but also the Twins who are going to win a hundred games and the Indians who are going to win ninety four and miss the playoffs. Yeah, it's. Just to be clear, neither the Indians nor the Rays nor the Athletics are have a chance to beat any of the teams in the AL. Which is depressing. And also the Twins, who should have been the story of the year. A team that has been trying to break through for the longest time, and finally it pays off. And they have the most homers in the history of a season, and they're still going. They're going to get to 300 by the end of the season. Yeah. And at the same time, they have almost no chance against either the Dodgers or the Yankees. The Astros are just a machine. They're a Death Star built to destroy other teams, and the Yankees just make every single thing work. And they're the they're the damn Yankees. Yeah, and they're get they got Severino back. He went four innings, hit ninety nine miles an hour, looked good. They're getting Stanton back tonight. He's back in the lineup tonight. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that actually. Sure. So I wanted to do our three stars of the week, which are basically that is I look at. Three things that three trends that are happening in the league are three interesting things that we've seen this week, and one of them is returning health just in time for the playoffs. 
And so in the AL specifically, we've got Sean Manea, as we mentioned, is back for the A's. Carlos Correa, as we mentioned, is back for the Ashers, and Ryan Presley, their best reliever, should be back within a week or so. Tyler Glasnow, who was pitching out of his mind early this season, has continued pitching out of his mind after missing a few months. And Blake Snell is also back, both of them for the Rays, who are looking to make a push to ensure that they get that second wildcard spot ahead of the Indians. Snell actually did let up a hit last night against the Dodgers in two innings, struck out four, didn't let up a hit. Against the Dodgers, yeah. And then Severino... Uh, was back last night for the Yankees, didn't allow a run in four innings, struck out four, and Stanton is rejoining the team today and should be playing again soon. But unfortunately for the Yankees, they also lost Dylan Batances yep. for the year. Uh, Gary Sanchez is hurt. Uh, Cameron Mabin might have hurt himself again. So the Yankees are sort of, have this entire season been on the precipice of a great team with stars that are all healthy versus a really good team with absolute nobodies who are playing because they have to. Yeah, I think they peaked too early. They they went on a, like an insane run where all of their role players, like Urshela and Ford. Mabin, Talkman. Mabin, Mike Talkman were hitting out of their minds. And now it's... Luke Voigt. Luke Voigt. It wasn't necessarily Voigt because he's he actually did well last year in the small time that he played. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, they peaked too early, and they look their their top end guys are looking good, but their depth is starting to go away. I feel like yeah, as as weird as that sounds with the injured guys that they have coming back, Urshela, I I really don't think he's been doing that well. Glaber's been doing well. Lemayhew has been doing relatively well, although he started to trail off a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, that's the thing. All all their guys have just started to trail off into. They're, they've been regressing. Yeah, and Talkman is out for the season as well. Yeah. So the Yankees are sort of the team which might not be as good as you think. And this is my hot take on a podcast, but I think the Yankees might get bounced in the first round by the Twins. I've never heard anything more false in my life. <laughs> How can you bet against the Yankees if they're facing the Twins? Because the Twins have a bunch of bashers who... So do the Yankees. Yeah, but it's basically a, ma- a matchup of bashing versus versus uh, bashing, and the Twins have more homers this year. And while they might not uh, stay keep up in the playoffs, the Yankees, I don't know, are just in, the Yankees might be in trouble. And the Twins are well-positioned to take care of that. The issue is that their starting rotation isn't that great, and their bullpen isn't that great, and... Don't you dare the, put any disrespect on Taylor Rogers' name. Sorry, Taylor Rogers has been great. He's a guy I've been hoping the Ashes would get for a couple of years, but now it's impossible because he's just proven everything he ever thought he could do. But the Twins-Yankees series, in my opinion, is going to be the most interesting in the first round of the playoffs. So you're saying it's a foregone conclusion that the Yankees are going to be the two seed? It's not a foregone conclusion that the Yankees are going to be the two seed. But if that happens, that's something I would love to see. Now, if the Astros end up being the two seed, then I would also be very interested in Astros twin series because I don't think that one would be close. I don't know. Justin Verlander has had a penchant for allowing homers. Garrett Cole has a fifteen percent home run fly ball rate since the All Star break, which is even worse than Verlander's. And the Twins, as you know, feast on fastballs. So, I I feel like the Astros are better at the, than the Twins at everything. The Astros are better than the Twins at everything. Except for home runs, but literally only home runs. The Astros don't strike out, and the Twins do. Nelson Cruz has been one of the best hitters in the league this year, but he 
but while he's been doing that, there are about four Astros clustered right around him in the WRC Plus rankings. So it doesn't really, I don't know, it doesn't really lend itself to that much, but those are, I don't know, there are going to be a few Titans this uh, this year facing off in the ALDS. There won't be really a lot of that in the NLDS, so that's why the ALDS, well, the AL this year probably hasn't been as interesting as the NL as far as races go besides the wild card race. The AL is where the best playoff games, in my opinion, are going to end up being played. So that leads us into a series that is... Oh, do you have something else? I got two more stars. Oh, yeah, I guess yeah, I guess three stars means three, not one. Yeah, and so and this next one I think you're going to be a huge fan of. So we're going to be talking about relievers. So there have, so the 40-man rosters for the final time are happening in MLB. That's going to be cut down last year, next year, I believe, to around 28. And so uh, and it, it, this tied the record last night. 24 pitchers were used in the Giants-Red Sox 15-inning game. But not only were 24 pitchers used, 50 players overall will, were used. That's based, Imagine if every team in a game in June or something decided to use every single player on their team, including all of their starting pitchers for God knows what reason. It's basically what happened because they had the benefit of the 40-man rosters. And so the Red Sox uh, bullpen actually did phenomenally well for one that has been relatively inconsistent this year. They threw eight scoreless innings leading up to, I don't remember if it was the 12th or 13th inning. It was the 12th. The 12th inning, both teams scored a run. But unfortunately for them, the Giants won for the first time since 1915. At Fenway Park. Yeah. I, I, interleague play is always something that's been fun to me because it's, you never get to see any of these guys in the NL more than once every, like, tw- six Two or three years. Two, two or three, three years. years. Yeah, I guess, rotating divisions. But, yeah, so, yeah, AL East won against the NL West this year, and we played the Giants. And the Giants are not very good. No. But the Giants are the kind of so, team. Yeah, so that leads yeah. me. Do you think that if these two teams were contending for a wild card spot or a division or whatever, that they would have used fewer pitchers? That's a good question. Um, that also kind of reminds me of this question, which we've been facing the entire year, which is position players pitching. And so basically at one po- what point in a game or what point in a season do you decide, oh, well, the, gig is, the jig is up. We've got to just give it up at this point. And you're seeing that a lot more this year, even among the contenders. Like the Astros have been willing to use position players pitching. The Yankees have been willing to use position players pitching. The A's have been willing to do that. But also teams like, you know, the White Sox have been doing that, but the White Sox have a terrible team. And so I think that this year specifically, we might still be seeing that. I mean, we might not have the pitcher getting pulled after four innings, but also you don't expect the game to go on for 15. Because, I know, you know, Eovaldi got pulled after the fourth, I believe. All right, so here's here's a, a banter kind of thing. What is the score at which you would want your team to bring in a position player to ten, pitch? Ten runs. There's there's less than a. I mean, in what what inning? What what inning would it have to be? Eighth. Ten runs in the eighth inning. I mean, maybe. What if it's fifteen in the sixth? If it's fifteen in the sixth, I just put in the long guy and then rest him for a day. All right. So you say ten in the eighth and and uh, position player. Yeah. What about, what inning does it have to be in an extra inning game for you to put a position player in? 
Um, when would I have used my entire bullpen? That didn't answer my question. If what I mean, an extra inning game, I want to use my pitchers as long as possible. But I'm unless it's a guy who I know can go more than like two innings, then I don't want to use them for more than like an inning, an inning and a half. So if I've used my entire bullpen, and then let's say around like the fourteenth, fifteenth inning. Then I'm okay with putting a position player in. I'd wait. I I think 15 innings is the point where I would put it in. Put him in. I yeah. think the I think a 15 inning game is vastly different from a 14 inning game. At least how I really? look at it. I, it's very weird. I look at like I think 14 innings is like wow, it's a long extra inning game. I think of 15 innings as wow, this is a marathon game that nobody's ever gonna win. That's fair. I mean, each game counts as much as the next. So I don't know. Honestly, if you're if this is like the doldrums of the season, if it's like July or something like that, and it's the thirteenth inning, and maybe the bullpen had a bad game yesterday, or you've just been losing using a lot of pitchers, I'm okay with putting a position player in at that point, because I don't know. I mean, just basically hope that your team can take advantage of the other team's uh, relievers that they have in, which are also probably not going to do that great. I don't know. Save, basically, like saving your bullets. I'm okay with saving your bullets in the middle of the season versus like if it's like April or May. I kind of want to try to win as many games as I can then because those really, um, I don't know, are things that you like to have in your back pocket at the end. But if it's a game where the team is just kind of might get a little depressed, then just put it, if like it keeps going on and you keep having to put more and more pitchers in. Put in a position player, save your relievers for tomorrow, and try to win that game. But yeah, but in September, I would not put a position player as a pitcher because you should never have a need to do that, especially if you're a contending team. And I don't think they had any. There were no uh, position players in the Red Sox-Giants game, were there? No, there weren't. Yeah, which, you know, is indicative of something, I guess. And then the third star that I want to talk about is Yu Darvish. Yu Darvish, yes. who has been... Well, you Darvish is has been known for striking people out basically since he came to the league, and the last couple starts of his that he's had this week have just been kind of emblematic of who he is. So he has 27 strikeouts in two starts, which, I don't know, you might assume that he went seven or eight and in maybe nine innings. He went seven in one game and six in another. So that's good for an 18.69 K9, which is crazy. Nice. Yeah, it's really it's very very nice. Good job, you Darvish. It's high and nice. But anyway, uh, he didn't win both of those games though. He won the first. They played the Padres. He only let up one run. But against the Reds, I think he went six innings, let up four runs, but at the same time still had thirteen strikeouts. So I think he had. Lo- they lost. Yeah. They had how many did he have in a row? I, I remember him eight in a row. He had, eight, he had row. eight in a row at one point, but he still couldn't pull it off because I think he just had a bad first inning. Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Aristides Aquino hit a home run in the first inning, and so he let Another up. Remember of your bright future Reds. Bright future Reds. Keep an eye on them. But so you Darvish is someone I just wanted to give a shout out to. He might is probably going to be forgotten over the course of this season. The Cubs might make the playoffs. They're not going to even if they win the wild card game, they're not going to do anything against the Dodgers. But you Darvish deserves some major props for 27 strikeouts in 13 innings over two starts. Yeah, that's a lot. All right. What's next? So to wrap up today, I want to talk about 
a kind of depressing inc- incident that took place recently involving Pirates star uh, Felipe Vasquez. Um, it came out that he was in some sort of ties with a 13-year-old girl, and he had apparently asked her for sex and then didn't get it. There's a lot, lot of information. What do you, what, what have you been hearing about it? Um, I saw the thing about a 13-year-old girl. It was something about, um, him saying, "Oh, I have a game today," so it didn't happen, thankfully. But, and then there's something else with him soliciting a 15-year-old, sending pictures, and then, uh, someone told their parents, who then thankfully immediately told the cops, and then Vasquez was arrested. And basically said, yeah, I did all this stuff. So he's someone who I'm pretty sure we're not going to see in a baseball uniform ever again. Yeah, it's going. I I I, I agree. I don't want to see him in a baseball uniform ever again. I think it's going to be interesting to see how MLB handles this. I mean, I think it's relatively likely that he's going to go to jail for a while. Oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize. Yeah, that. yeah. The MLB uh, does. I mean, obviously they're corrupt possible criminals who are domestic abusers who still play in the MLB today, and that's an important topic for another day, but with Vasquez, I think he's the kind of guy who, there's the hard evidence, there's the fact that he admitted it, and yeah, I think he's going to go to jail, and it's sort of the same deal with, uh, what's his name? The pitcher from Oregon State, Luke Heimlich, who, I don't know if you know this story, but a couple years back, there was a guy who... It's probably maybe a first round, maybe first round, maybe second round talent coming out of Oregon State. But the thing is, he had admitted when he was a teenager to um, basically statutory rape and incest with his cousin or something along those lines. And then Oregon State, quote unquote, took a chance on him, which that's not the thing you want to take a chance on. But anyway, so Luke Heimlich ended up going undrafted. And. So that's the kind of thing which, if this had come out about Vasquez before he signed with the Pirates back when he did, then I don't think there's any way that they would have signed him. So he's the kind of guy who is going to go to jail for a long time, and even if it's to jail for a short time or not at all, he's not going to wear another MLB uniform again. Yeah. Um. Do you remember Josh Lukey? I do remember Josh Lukey. I'm pretty sure he was convicted of some kind of rape, was he not? I don't remember. I am going to look that up. I... I... I feel like the Mariners acquired him amidst some sort of controversy. That's putting it lightly. Yeah, let me see. Six foot five, Josh Lukey. Legal history. Here we go. While in the Rangers organ, this is Wikipedia, by the way. While in the Rangers organization, Lukey was arrested following a May 2008 incident and charged with having committed rape and non-consensual sodomy. During the investigation, Lukey lied to the police by denying he had sexual contact with the victim, and he pleaded no contest to lesser charges of false imprisonment with violence and was sentenced to 42 days in jail, time served prior to making bail. An additional 20 days were discounted due to good behavior, and Lukey received three years of felony probation. After the July 9, 2010 trade that sent Lukey to the Seattle Mariners, team president Chuck Armstrong denied having any knowledge of Lukey's criminal past. Sure. Um, and said that if he had known, he would have stopped the deal with Texas. Up to that point, the Mariners organization had a long long history of supporting groups who opposed violence against women, running a campaign called Refuse to Abuse. Okay, okay. 
And yeah, so it, it doesn't say whether or not, oh my God, his pi- what the heck is his picture? <laughs> Are you looking at his picture with his? No. Show me. His baseball reference picture has his beard in two separate braids. Lovely. So this is a guy who, did he ever pitch another inning after yeah, that came he, out? Yeah, he's he pitched 2011 with the Mariners, 2012, 2013, and 2014 with the Rays. Lovely. That's not the kind of guy. Uh, Negative yeah. 1.2 war. Also, Pete Alonzo just hit number 49. Pete Alonzo, 50 home runs. He's chasing. He's going to beat Suarez to it. Wait, does that mean that he had two? He has. Does he have two in his game today? No, he only has one. Okay. Gotcha. I do not remember when he hit his 48th, but yeah. Now, what I am very excited for, speaking of Pete Alonso and Eugenio Suarez, is one pitching matchup this Friday night, which I would say is the premier pitching matchup on Friday night. We have Jacob deGrom, who is probably going to win the Cy Young against Luis Castillo, who's got an ERA of 322 this year. for, And it's going to be in Great American Ballpark. You could have Suarez. It's not quite Bonds versus... Not Bonds. It's not quite McGuire versus Sosa in 98. But you could have both Suarez and Alonso trying for number 50 with two aces on the mound. And so that's a game that I'm going to be keeping my eye on this weekend. And that's a game that you guys at home should be watching as well. We'll leave you with that. Thanks for tuning in.